Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line. I don't have any conclusive news on the house buying subject yet, but we have put an offer in. We found a house that we like very much. And we've put an offer in. So I hope that next time I'll have some news. And if I don't mention this ever again, it probably means that we didn't get the house. So don't ask me about it because I might just burst into tears or something. So anyway, hopefully we'll have some good news for you next time on the house subject. Although I understand that I'm far more excited about this than you guys are because this is not your house. But whatever, just keep everything crossed for us because we want this house. Hold the line. Now, what I did think I would do is talk a little bit about where I live now and the the kind of, well, the sort of shooting working dogs side of things where I live now, or maybe the complete absence of that, which is a massive part of why we are moving. Um, so the first thing to say, though, is, well, I'll tell you where I live. So I live in Jersey, which is an island that is nine miles by five. So it's quite small. And it's off the coast of France. If you look on a map, it's way closer to France than it is to the UK. And Jersey is actually not part of the UK. So I think that is a big thing to explain. A lot of people just assume that it is, but it's not. It's actually very, it's not completely independent, but it's a little bit independent. Let's not get into the history here because it's quite complicated. And this is not a podcast about the history of Jersey. Um, <laughs> suffice to say that it is British but it's not part of the UK. And we have lots of unique, different laws and customs. And our money is different. For example, we have one pound notes, which the mainland UK does not have any longer. So there you go. And by the way, if you hold our one pound notes up to the light, you can see the watermark of a Jersey cow on the notes, because of course, that's where Jersey cows come from. Jersey. Anyway, Let's talk a little bit more about um, dogs and dog-related things in Jersey. So I think the first thing to say is that we I'm from Jersey originally, so I grew up here. And I, you know, my, my parents were from Jersey, my grandparents all farmed in Jersey. They were tenant farmers, so they didn't own the farms where they worked. They kind of rented them. And when they stopped being farmers, they stopped owning the beautiful old Jersey farms which they'd worked. But their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' 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 parents, way back to the 1500s, are all from Jersey. So I'm completely inbred because all all of me genetically is from Jersey back to the 1500s. I mean, there's got to be, I think there are, in fact, 
cousins getting married a few times on the family tree. So anyway, that's why I married an American. Let's get some new blood into the island. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so in terms of working your dog, let's get back on the subject here. In terms of working your dogs in Jersey. So um, we did not have this as a priority when we moved back here. When we moved back here, we had two older HBRs. And I mean, I think one was eight and one was six. And, you know, working our dogs was not a priority at that point. I was going through some health issues, which is a major reason why we moved back home to be nearer to family. And yeah, it was only when we kind of got back here that I sort of realized the kind of complete lack of anything, really. So things about living here in Jersey is that it is illegal to shoot pheasant and partridge unless they are a pest. If they're a pest to crops, then you can shoot them, but you can't shoot them for any other reason. You can't shoot them for sport. So in order for them to be deemed to be a pest to crops, by the way, you have to have a written letter from the farmer whose crops they are a threat to, (laughs) to say that they are a threat and that they give you permission to shoot on their land. So it's not very easy to get around it that way either. So it's basically... It's basically not possible to shoot pheasant and partridge here. They are protected. They're protected birds. So the knock-on effect of that is that we can't have shoots here either. So the whole sort of community of people which grow up around a shoot, the beaters, the pickers up, the loaders, you know, just the whole sort of hustle and bustle community and, and group of people that come together to make this happen just can't exist here. Um, and that's really sad. So you can still shoot pigeon and rabbits and there's not any season for those. You can shoot them year round. But so you then, you know, moving back here, I thought, well, maybe we can do some rough shooting then. But they've kind of made that really difficult as well. There used to be a little organization here. I can't remember exactly what it was called. It was something like Jersey rough shooting community or I don't know, rough shooters of Jersey. I don't know, it's something like that. And there were a little group of people who used to come together and use each other's land to shoot on. And I know this because I was out training one of our dogs and someone driving past spotted me and came (laughs) screeching to a halt in their Land Rover and joyously approached me because they could see that I had dummies and I had a game bag and I was doing gun dog stuff. And it turned out that this was someone who used to belong to this rough shooters organization. He told me about this. So the fact is that it all fell apart because Jersey brought in some very bureaucratic laws around being able to shoot in particular fields. So for example, if you want to shoot in a field, you have to get permission, written permission, not just verbal permission, written permission from the owner of the field to say that you, named person, are allowed to shoot in their field number, blah, 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 whatever the field number is. And then this letter signed by the owner of the land has to be taken to the parish hall of the field concerned and filed at the parish hall. I haven't finished yet. Then someone from the parish hall comes out to assess the field concerned and determine whether it is safe to shoot in. Now, this is completely ridiculous. It's probably going to sound completely ridiculous to lots of you. Um, there's not any sort of casual, yeah, sure, come on, come and shoot on my land next week or something like that. It just doesn't exist. It just it just can't happen. So 
it kind of killed any sort of community of people meeting up because it just would be really impractical. They'd have to get written permission. It would have to name every person concerned. It would have to be filed at the parish halls for the fields concerned. Um, it just would be insane. And then the person that the person from the parish hall will have to come out and meet with the people who were going to be shooting in that. It just is just it just killed it. It just completely killed it. So yes, and I can tell you that's what has to happen because we have some fields, and that is what happened when they came out to our field to assess them. And the most ludicrous thing is that there were there were there were fields and there were directions that Adam, my husband, who shoots. Um, did not feel safe shooting in. He thought it was too close to people's property. He didn't want to shoot over public footpaths. And he would have chosen personally not to shoot in those particular locations. And yet he was given permission to shoot in those locations, which just, you know, it's just a bit crazy, really. So anyway, it is bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. And it's kind of killed um, this part of Jersey, which is part of the rural heritage, if you think about it. It's part of just... It's part of a farming community. It's part of agriculture. It's part of just being connected to the ground and the animals and the place, really, I think. So I'm really sad that this has kind of been made to be impossible. And yet everybody in Jersey toddles along to Waitrose to purchase their plastic packed pheasant, which has been shot in the UK and then shipped over here to be sold to them in their kind of plastic wrapped, um, yeah, polystyrene things in, in the supermarket, which doesn't make any sense to me when we have pheasant, we're crawling with pheasant now. Oh, so that's another little interesting story. So in the 1960s, I think it was 1960s, could be 1980s, I don't know, it's a bit vague exactly when this was, but some people didn't realise that there was a law that you couldn't shoot pheasant here. And they wanted to have their own shoot in Jersey. So they got some pheasant and they released them onto their land and put some feeders out as if they were going to be able to have a shoot. And then they were told after they'd done this that actually this was illegal and they couldn't do it and they had to stop. But by then it was too late because the birds were out there. So the birds survived and bred and now Jersey is basically pheasant paradise. So we've got pheasant everywhere, but we can't shoot them. They're just like, you'll fall over pheasant everywhere you go. And they, it's, it's, you know, I think someone should tell the pheasant of the UK that over here in Jersey, it's like paradise because no one can shoot them and they can just live the time of their lives. We don't have any foxes. We don't have badgers. We don't really have any sort of predators or nothing's going to come and eat their eggs. It's like, this is the place to be if you're a pheasant. So anyway, um, we are falling over pheasant and no one's allowed to shoot them. So that's just how it is. I guess in some ways it's good in terms of hunting and pointing training that we have this many wild pheasant. And it's also good they're wild because they're not, they're very flighty. They're not used to humans and they will flush pretty easily. So that's excellent for dog training purposes as well. But it's just a bit weird. So yeah. Um, anyway, pretty much all it's possible to do here is to shoot pigeon and rabbit on our specified named fields that we have. And that's basically it. We can do the hunting and the pointing side of things in many other places because that doesn't involve shooting and there are pheasant everywhere, but it's not ideal. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212.
Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. And before anyone thinks why don't you just pop over to the UK and do some stuff there? Let me tell you, that was one of my plans when we first moved here. I thought, oh, it'll be pretty easy. We'll just pop over. We'll stay involved in stuff in the UK. We'll, you know, do some training events. We'll compete. We'll do some stuff in the UK and keep it going. We're not going to be completely cut off. Well, let me tell you, firstly, the boat is a, uh, I don't really have the right word for it. It is like a gauntlet getting the boat to the UK. Firstly, the ferry company is notoriously unreliable. Um, if there is the slightest whiff of wind or waves in the channel, the ferry company decides to cancel the boat or reschedule the boat, or it breaks down, breaks down quite frequently, and then and then it has to be cancelled. So they are just awful, awful service, and they're the only ferry company serving the islands. So there's no competition. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, for this awful service, you have to pay, wait for it, for a return boat for two people and a car, 450 quid. That's about the cost of a return to from Jersey to the UK. So it just makes it hideously expensive to get to the UK. And then once you get to the UK, of course, then you've got accommodation to pay for. And it's very unlikely that the many different events that you want to participate in all fall neatly into a sort of two or three week period. Instead, often it's very frustrating. There'll be like an event and then there might be three weeks before the next event. And it's just not practical to stay in the UK doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for a second event and paying for accommodation in the meantime and staying away from home all that time. It just doesn't work out. And the other thing I've missed out about the boat experience is that it takes five hours to get from that's a fast boat by the way to get from jersey to the uk and i am the worst ever sailor so i just throw up basically the whole time in fact we probably haven't even left the port and i'm started to throw up already that's how awful it is flying is not a possibility with dogs so none of the airlines serving jersey will take dogs none of the domestic airlines so the only way to get off the island with dogs is this boat and yeah, it's just not practical. So anyway, that's why going to the UK ends up being not something that happens very often either. So we're back to the house again. This is why it's really important that we get this house and that we get off this island. So just please keep all your fingers crossed and I'll let you know an update on the house situation next time. Hold the line.
So I've got a little email to answer here from Aranka. And I have to apologize firstly, though, because this email is dated May and it's 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 an email that got mislaid somehow. I got filed away somewhere and I forgot to respond to it in the podcast. So I'm sorry, um, Aranka, here is your email. I'm going to answer it now. So you wrote and said... Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for your podcast, book and online courses. I learned a ton already and it definitely feels like it's just the beginning. Looking forward to learning more. Next on my to-do list is the Healwork course. I just completed your reliable recall course and we, my flat coat retriever and me, love doing it. We still practice the giant elastic recall with my husband a few days a week to get some exercise in and to keep him focused on the whistle and my recall words. The thing is, though, I try to practice the recall when we are out and about on our training walks We go to a nearby moorland and whilst walking we do a number of things, practicing retrieves, blind retrieves, stop whistle, and I want to practice the recall of course, but my dog just isn't enthusiastic about it in these situations. He's a retriever so he's really never that far away. If I let him walk freely, which I do only with a long line on him at all times, so when he's in front of me I will call him, he responds immediately by looking at me and turning towards me but then just almost strolls back to me. He loves the treats, which I only use for the recalls. He goes bananas over it during the giant elastic recall. And when I hide and then do the recall, he comes way more enthusiastically. So just a normal recall where he sees me immediately isn't bringing him much excitement. When we were at Gundog practice, which he obviously loves, he's very focused and eager. I still try to avoid using my recall because of his behavior outside the giant elastic recall. But I do see him responding to me, just stretching my arms out. And he loves running at me then at very high speed. I'm wondering if it is just him being an obnoxious teenager during our regular training sessions. He's 14 months. Sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm coming, relax, because he does come. Or if it might be too boring for him, or the environment being more enticing for him. And how can I fix that? Listening to your podcast about adolescence and your GSP only being interested in the bird when your husband tossed it far away, making it more difficult maybe, made me think that perhaps my flatty is just bored by the recall practices. Any advice you can provide will be highly appreciated. Thanks in advance. So, Aranka, the thing to say about this, there are a few things to say about this. So, basically, let's just let's just think about what science and learning theory tells us. So, learning theory tells us that in order for the for a behavior to occur, the dog has to be motivated. They have to want the thing that we have to reinforce the behavior, and they have to understand what they need to do in order to get that thing. So learning theory tells us that if the dog wants the thing enough and they understand what they have to do, we should get excellent behavior from the animal. Now, the thing to say about this is that the situation is slightly complicated by the fact that we have other reinforcers happening at the same time. So for example, if you were to do your recall in your house, I'm sure that your dog will come back to you incredibly enthusiastically and speedily and exactly how you want want him to because if that wasn't happening you would have told me about that you would have said oh earlier when I was doing the recall this is what was happening inside as well so the fact that you're experiencing these difficulties outside where you've got you're competing with these other distractions going on around you is potentially part of the reason why you're seeing this lack of um well drop in in terms of his motivation for your reinforcer so that's one thing to keep in mind so even if he is coming to you and he's not kind of investigating the the smells and the stuff around you he's kind of aware of all that and it is 
um, potentially distracting him. And it's something else that he's paying attention to. So you are no longer the sole thing that he's paying attention to. There's this other world of reinforcers around him, which is also taking some of his focus, some of his attention. So that's one way to look at it. So another thought, another idea is that having seen your dog do the clicker retrieve, which I've seen little videos of because you're doing that in the moment in my, in my Facebook group for the clicker retrieve course, which I offer online um, on my website, forcefreegundog.com, by the way, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, but yeah, so I've seen your dog and I've seen the way that when you were just sitting there like a robot with your clicker and your treats, that your dog was quite slow and quite ploddy and he was doing the behavior, but it was not like stylish and enthusiastic. And then when we got you to be a bit looser, to kneel down the floor, to be a bit more playful with the dummy, to try and engage your dog a little bit with your personality and with play, your dog came to life a lot and um, it was much more enthusiastic and much, much speedier, much more involved and engaged in the exercise as a whole. So I think that is a really important thing for you to take away from this as well. So how can you take that knowledge into your recall training? Well, one thing that you could do is when you call him, run away from him, be exciting, crouch down, be funny. And when he catches up with you, rather than just delivering the treat to his mouth, like, um, I don't know, a, a treat dispenser, um, <laughs> play with him a little bit. So give him the treat, but then push him on the shoulder a little bit and let him jump up at you and let him be a little, be a bit goofy with you. So I think if you can elicit that kind of play and that energy that comes from play in in training generally with him, that you're going to get this much better response and this much more sort of stylish, engaged, enthusiastic response from him. Having seen a little clip of him in Facebook group, um, that's what I'm basing that on anyway. So I hope that gives you some ideas for for ways to go with your recall training um, and keep going as well. I mean, adolescence is a potential explanation, but I don't like to... There are two things that I don't like to blame when it comes to behavior. I don't like to... I mean, blame's not the right word, but I don't like to attribute behavior to breed or to age. And that's not because these things are not playing a massive role. They can definitely be playing a massive role. Breed and age can definitely be playing a huge role in behavior, but they're also things that we can't do anything about. So we can't do anything about the age that your dog now is. We can't press fast forward and get through this horrible age. We have to just stick it out. Um, and what we do with the dog during this age is important as well. We can't just do nothing because with dogs, there's no such do nothing. There's no no sort of neutrality. We're always doing something. If we don't train the dog, we're not training the dog, but the dog is still being reinforced by the environment. So there's no there's no nothing in dog training. So something's still happening during adolescence, even if we don't do anything with the dog. So there's we have to do something with the dog. So we can't press fast forward and we have to use this time productively. And we can't use this breed either. We can't just click our fingers and change the breed of dog. So we're kind of stuck with these things. That doesn't mean that they are not playing a part, playing a role in your dog's behavior, because likely they are playing a part in all of our dog's behaviors, massive part. But we just got to kind of, you know, park it really, because we can't influence or change those things. So focus on the things that you can influence and you can change, the behaviors that you can um, shift a little bit. And don't focus too much on trying to find explanations for behavior, which you can't actually do anything about, even if they are the answer. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, I hope that gives you some ideas. Hold the line. So I've also had a question or maybe a few questions from Sally. 
So Sally says, hi, Joe, I'm an avid listener to your podcast. I only discovered you a few months ago, so plenty of back podcasts to catch up on. And so apologies if you've already covered the subject. I feel now might be a good time to ask a question. I've had a dog before when I was younger, a crazy Jack Russell, but never a gun dog. And it's been a lifetime ambition to have one. So after much research, we now have a puppy, which we are due to collect in September, aged 12 weeks. She's a fox red Labrador from Working Lines. She will be a family pet around kids seven to eight. And I'd like to train her to eventually do working trials tests and maybe more. I'm really enthusiastic and I've been reading a book and others. I've got your workbook and I'm trying to create a bit of a training and milestone schedule for the first few weeks, which incorporates some of your training exercises, but some wider stuff too, e.g. socialization, new environments. So after that long intro, I'm interested to hear if you have any thoughts around key training activities for the first few weeks or months and the balance to strike between general good dog skills versus Labrador gun dog skills. Any do's and don'ts and thoughts around training classes to target? Many thanks, Sally. So Sally, I think we have covered some subjects which are relevant to all of this in the past. So I hope that you can find those earlier podcasts because there are things that we've touched on in terms of raising puppies and attending training classes in the past that I think will be useful for you. Um, a couple of things to just explain. The first thing is when you say working trials, I just want to say working trials is not gundog work. So I just want to clarify that because it's a common mistake that people make that they that working tests are gundog stuff and field trials are gundog stuff, but working trials are not gundog stuff. And I think that's why people get a little bit confused with that. But working trials is a different dog sport, basically. I'm not going to go into great explanation about what it is, but it's not gundog work. Um, so just thought I'd point that out. I'm going to assume that you don't mean working trials, but that you mean gundog stuff, which is what the rest of your email implies. So assuming you want to do gundog stuff with your puppy, to answer your questions, firstly, I would say forget about gundog stuff. Really, she's just like when you get her at 12 weeks old, by the way, 12 weeks, I would suggest you try to get her at eight weeks. You can get her at eight weeks because she will be much younger and much more within the socialization period. So eight weeks is sort of the standard age to get a puppy. And that will enable you to have many weeks within the socialization period with her to expose her to the things that you wanted to, to expose her to. If you collect her at 12 weeks, you may just have a few weeks before she's out of the socialization period. And that may not be long enough to expose her to everything that you need to expose her to, whilst also making sure that she's comfortable with everything that you're exposing her to, which is the other very important part of socialization. It's not just about you know, showing your puppy the world. It's about making sure that your puppy receives the world in a way that enables them to feel comfortable with it. And you're always going to be watching your puppy and her responses to the world when you decide how much of it to expose her to, how close to go to things and that sort of stuff. So really, there's not much gundog specific about about these early days. The socialization is the thing to prioritize, I always tell people, because it's time limited. So you can train a dog at any age but you can't socialize a dog at any age. So it really pays to spend your time on socialization and to sort of stay out of the way a little bit and just watch your puppy and how she's receiving the world and be there for your puppy in her early experiences if she needs a source of sort of comfort or reassurance or confidence that you're there for her in that way. But you're not sort of trying to train her in a sort of you and her clicking, treating sort of way out and about in public while she's in the socialization period. So I recommend that people use a puppy house line. So if you look on Amazon and just look for a clicks, C-L-I-X, puppy house line, it's a very lightweight, longish lead. 
I think it's two and a half meters long. It does not have a handle on the end, it sort of ends in a blunt end. And that's so that you can drop it on the floor around the house. If you want your puppy to trail it around the house, you can grab it to take her out to toilet if you're toilet training her. Um, but you can also use this as an early lead, which is what I like to do. So it just enables your puppy to get a bit further away from you. And because it's so light, it's a really nice first introduction to the lead. It's not a really heavy thing, which the puppy is a bit weirded out by. So um, yeah, you're just going to follow your puppy. That was what I recommend doing. Let her decide where to go, what to sniff, when to stop and check out the world. It's very different to what you might do with an older dog because you are just following the puppy or they're just there for the puppy and you're watching how how the puppy is experiencing the world. And that's kind of your main task. And if your puppy shows signs of fear or worry, you're going to withdraw away from whatever it is. Maybe try and have a little game with a toy or sprinkle some treats on the floor and return to that location, maybe at a greater distance a few more times until you see her feeling more comfortable. So that is the first thing. That's your first priority, socialization. And the other thing about training classes, you don't need a gun dog class. So I've mentioned this before in a recent podcast, but especially with a little puppy, there's nothing gun dog specific about training. It's going to be about teach your puppy to sit, teach your puppy to walk basically at heel, teach your puppy to recall, all of these things that are in any decent general dog training class are also basic gun dog skills. So you don't need a gun dog specific class. In fact, I'd recommend that you don't even try and look for a gun dog specific class unless you know that it is a force free class because there may be training methods that are used in other classes, which are not great. So I would recommend sticking to a reputable force free training class. If you're in the UK, looking at the APDT, um, or many of the other organizations that exist and the classes that they offer. And that will ensure that you choose a trainer who's going to be using force-free methods. Um, I think that's really all I would say. So in terms of the classes that I have, if you want to choose one of the classes from my website, I always suggest that people with puppies start with the Reliable Recall course because I think the recall is one of the most important behaviors that exist Partly because your dog's freedom, your dog's future freedom depends on them being able to recall reliably. So if they don't have a reliable recall, they're probably going to spend a lot of their time on a long line or on a lead with much restricted freedom. So it's in their interests for you to ensure that they have a reliable recall. So really focus on that with your young puppy and it will pay dividends through the rest of your dog's life. So think that's the main thing and the other thing to say about planning training and reading my workbook and you know making a schedule all of that is fine as long as you're prepared to throw it all out when you get the puppy because the puppy will dictate the speed that you go and your puppy may go zipping through certain things and other things may take far longer than you expected and that's just normal so it's fine to make all the plans in the world but when you get your little individual puppy they are who they are and you need to adjust to fit them and what they need rather than trying to squidge them into your pre-decided training plan. So that's the other thing that I would say as well. Hope that is useful, those thoughts, and good luck with your puppy. Hold the line. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. Whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. 
So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Got one last quick email here from Mark, who says, Hi Joe, I recently attended a retriever field trial as a gun. Unfortunately, two dogs were eliminated for having a hard mouth. And this got me wondering, is there any way to train a soft mouth using force-free methods? Part of the interest is that my Cocker Spaniel is going backwards on his retrieves, especially with tennis balls, which he loves to bite down on and chew, and also de-skin them if left long enough. In general, he's a very destructive chewer and de-fluffer. No amount of providing appropriate objects has helped. So I'm worried he is a potential hard mouth candidate. Anyway, the hard mouth thing really got me thinking, and I was wondering if you have ever dealt with this problem. Regards, Mark. So, Mark, there's a few things to say there. The, I'm gonna, I mean, the two different things. Firstly, your Cocker Spaniel and what's going on with your Cocker Spaniel and Retrieves. And then the whole subject of, of hard mouth and is it possible to do anything about that? So, I think, this is my opinion, because all we have on this subject, by the way, there's no kind of um, factual consensus on it. All we have is a variety of opinions. And my opinion on the hard mouth subject is that it's largely genetic. So... I do think that the dog's early introductions to game, being calm and being on dead game, not pricked game, which is still alive, I think that can really help. So if you have a young dog and you send them to retrieve an exciting, very much still alive I don't know, bird, for example, then the excitement of going in on that very still alive bird can cause them to bite down too hard. Um, just because just the arousal levels from it all being so new and so exciting. So that's the first thing to say. I would make sure that for a little while at first that your dog is only sent for dead, dead, as it were, things um, and not things that are still got a lot of fight in them. <laughs> so that's the first thing that I would say. But apart from that little tip, it's largely genetic. So I do think that it's genetic and in a broad way, you can you can see that because there tends to be this is this is a big generalization now. It tends to be that hard mouth is more of an issue in HBR breeds than it is in, for example, retrievers um, and spaniels. And the reason for that is in their countries of origin, 
HBRs are not assessed for hard mouth in this really stringent way that they are in the UK. So in the UK, in case anyone isn't in the UK and they don't know what's done. So in the UK, anytime a bird is retrieved to the handler, the handler immediately passes that bird to the judge who's next to them. And the judge will then examine the bird and they'll lift up the bird's wings, for example, and they'll feel all the way down the bird's rib cage to make sure that the rib cage hasn't been put in by by the dog biting down too hard on the bird. And if the bird is damaged by the dog, I mean, if it's just a little scratch from teeth, that's fine. But if it's like the rib cage has been put in, then the dog will be put out for hard mouth. And so if you think about it, dogs which have for generations and generations and generations been selected to be soft on game are genetically going to be softer on game than dogs who have not been selected for generations and generations to be soft on game, for example. So that's another thing to say. So so it is largely genetic. And the best way to ensure that your dog has a soft mouth is to ensure that your dog's parents are proven in the field and have, um, for example, awards and they wouldn't be able to have that if they didn't have a soft mouth. So you can kind of rest assured that genetically you're, you can never be a hundred percent sure, but genetically you're buying a puppy, which is likely to have a soft mouth. And that's the best that you can do to set things up in the right way. So I hope that helps as far as what to do about it goes, because there isn't much training wise that you can do about hard mouth. It's a really tough one to fix. There are really barbaric suggestions if you read um, literature of years past involving barbed wire and things like that, which I do not recommend. That will probably put your dog off retrieving altogether. But yeah, it's really hard to fix whatever method you use, because even if you were to use something barbaric like barbed wire, it's not going to carry across to when your dog is sent to retrieve game. And the excitement and the arousal which these dogs feel just before they bite down on the game is it tends to overcome anything that you've done training wise, because that emotional association is just a really hard thing to to change um, through training. So that's that's all I would say in terms of the hard mouth side of things. Think about genetics and make sure you buy the right kind of puppy so you, to set yourself up for that in the future. And in terms of your Cocker Spaniel, don't worry about what your, your Spaniel does on toys. So whatever your Spaniel does with with toys or tennis balls is not necessarily what he's going to do on game. He's just playing. So dogs can be very destructive with toys and rip them to pieces. It doesn't mean that they're going to do that on game. So I would say, though, that you don't want to let him. So let's talk about objects, though. So if you take a step back from that. So when your dog is interacting with an object, they are either one in a very structured way interacting with that object because you're you're in a training situation and you're training them to do something with that object. It's probably a retrieve if you're doing gun dog work, but for other dog sports, it could be teaching a dog to target an object and to super glue their nose to it, for example, or to pour it. There are lots of different things you can teach a dog to do with an object. So that's one mode of interacting with an object is that you you are training the dog to do something with or to the object. And the other way that a dog can interact with an object is just in a free way. They're just, just, you know, they're just being a dog. They're entertaining themselves. They've come across something on the floor and it's just them and the object. And the object is a source of interest to them to do whatever they want to do with. So these are two very different ways of functioning. And when we are training the dog, we care that the dog treats the objects in a certain way. 
And when we're not training the dog, we don't care how the dog treats the various objects that they're playing with because it's their time and it's their toy and they can do what they want with it. These are two different um, things. And, you know, the, the dog can inter- can interact differently with the same object. So, um, for example, I could give a dog a, a tennis ball and if they've got a reliable retrieve, I can ask them to deliver that tennis ball to hand, which they will do delicately, gently, without rolling it or chomping it and put it in my hand. And I can give the same dog the tennis ball and just say, here's a tennis ball, go play with that. And they'll go off and rip it to pieces because it, in that, that situation, it's a toy. So an object is not an object. It depends whether you're using that object within a structure, within a training structure, or whether the dog is just in free play with the object. So it's important to differentiate that. So the next thing to say about what you've mentioned here. So your cocker spaniel is going backwards on his retrieves, especially with tennis balls. So the first thing I would say is don't use tennis balls on retrieves. I'm not a fan of using tennis balls, especially when you're starting out with retrieves because dogs tend to roll tennis balls around in their mouth. They tend to chomp them and chomp them and chomp them. Just the shape of the tennis ball itself and maybe the material, I don't know, but it tends to make sure that the dog rolls the item around in their mouth and chomps and chomps and chews. And these are not mouth habits that we want to encourage on retrieves. And because if you're using the tennis ball here on your retrieves, this is this behavior is potentially getting trained into your retrieves. So I would recommend not using tennis balls for your retrieves until you've trained your dog to have a still mouth. And the way that I train dogs to have a still mouth is through the clicker retrieve. So it's part of the clicker retrieve process. And the stage in the clicker retrieve that's involved is the stage called proofing the hold against food. So in this step, we teach the dog to keep holding the object, even when there's food held right out in front of them at nose height. The dog understands not to drop the object in the presence of food. And once the dog understands this, we can use it in all kinds of different, really useful ways. And one way is to achieve a still mouth. Because the dog, when they're focused on the food, forgets about the fact they're holding something and stills their mouth. And that enables us to click the still mouth and deliver the treat. And so over time, you can teach the dog how to hold their mouth still and how not to roll things around in their mouth. So until you've got to that stage of training, I would recommend not using tennis balls because you haven't got a sort of training step in place to address this issue. So you just don't want to encourage it before you've established this um, proofing the hold against food. So that's that's what I would say about that. If your dog is freely playing with tennis balls, then that's fine, as long as you don't mind him leaving fluff all over your house and generally being destructive. But that's fine because it's his time and it's his toy to play with. But you also mentioned de-skinning them if he's left with them long enough. So if this is, we're back to this whole idea of there being two different ways of interacting with objects. If this is a retrieve, he shouldn't be left to interact with the object long enough that he's going to be able to de-skin it because he's always being trained how to interact with the object. So he's picking it up, he's delivering it to hand, it's touching your hand, it's falling to the floor if you're doing the click of retrieve. So he's not then got an opportunity to de-skin it. So it shouldn't be possible for, for that to happen is the answer there. If you're using the tennis ball as a retrieve item or if you're using the whatever this object is as a retrieve item, it's only going to be possible for him to do that if he's kind of freely interacting and playing with the item, in which case it's just totally up to you if you want to let him do that to the thing or not. Um, and the final thing to say is that, as I mentioned before, 
the way that he interacts with all of these items is nothing to do with his predisposition to develop hard mouth in the future. So it's for some way, the, the way that he interacts with objects is not related to the way that he interacts with, with game in that way. So don't worry about that. Um, the best way to set yourself up for success is to purchase a puppy with the right genetic material if you want to try to avoid hard mouth. Hold the line. So that's all for this week, everybody. And I will talk to you soon. Bye bye for now. Hey! Hey!